0: In October 2019, a team of visually impaired and sighted artists and collaborators took journeys together into the city of Bristol with the aim of uncovering the usually unheard stories of visually impaired citizens and returning these stories to the heart of the city narrative. The journeys were recorded and revealed such a treasure trove of insights and shared experiences that the City of Threads podcast was born. Each episode is hosted by core members of that team, and features the journeys they took, so join us on an immersive audio journey into the city of threads. Welcome to We're Going In.
1: Well, uh, well, well, I'm, I'm just going to say when you first when you first walked into the room,
2: <laughs> I don't like. Citrus fruit, that hey. Works.
3: Hey. No. Oh, there's something else I've discovered about yes. you. There we
1: are. <laughs> it's a vibrant, it's a, it's a real mixture of smells as you approach it.
3: And do you ever find yourself doing those sort of um,
1: steps? Fake steps. steps. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> Ministry of Funny Walks, here we come. <laughs> we're going in.
2: <laughs> yeah, we're going in. I'm just wondering if it sounds more beautiful than it looks.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
4: Yes, I certainly picked up on the sounds, wind in the trees, the birds, the scents, the smells of food, the surfaces of
1: pavement. I just see the city in a whole new light now. Like a reawakening, isn't it, of the place that you've always taken for granted?
3: Yes, yeah, experiencing it in a new way, isn't it? So I think there's something really interesting about taking the journey um, and really listening to the person that you're travelling with and having this shared experience that meant that it was possible to find out or discover something something new about my relationship with someone that I've known for a very long time. It is that sort of universal thing of... Um, if in any way you experience the world differently or it's not quite designed, you know, with with you in mind, if you like, then, um, yeah, there's sort of things that we need to understand, I guess, about each other's experiences that help us
1: all to, yeah, just sort of appreciate. How people adapt. Yeah. How very adaptive people are, actually. Yeah. That's another thing people... she, She said, you know, if you don't talk about it, then nobody's going to know and nobody can actually respond to it. You don't have to bleat on about it or make it a big deal but if if you talk to people about it then you know that makes it less of a deal yeah
3: and it can kind of become more of just a natural part of a conversation it's sort of one part of who you are isn't it it's one one kind of strand that makes up who, who we all are and I guess that's true of anyone isn't it really it's something about um just having a kind of more whole understanding of of each other and um, yeah not feeling like it's something that is the only thing you want to talk about but equally also not that you you know something to be shied away from either I guess as he said it's part of you yeah
4: and the variousness of people is wonderful absolutely the world would be boring if we were all the same wouldn't
1: it just embrace (laughs) the
4: variousness I say that's Lou Lively Holly Thomas and me Fanny Eaton-Hall Fanny and I are your co-hosts for this episode, called We're Going In. Lou and Holly were talking about what it was like for them both taking their journeys into the city with someone they knew very well, in Holly's case a friend of 20 years, and in Lou's her
1: daughter Emily. Our episode will be exploring some of the new discoveries that those two journeys into the city revealed, for both parties. We'll
4: be hearing more from Holly later, but for now, we're starting with your journey, Lou. Are you ready?
1: Yes, let's go. We're We're going going in. in.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Here's Lou with her daughter Emily in Arnolfini's light studio. Arnolfini is a contemporary art centre and gallery situated on the harbour side in the heart of Bristol. They are supporters of the City of Threads project and their light studio is the start and end point for all our journey takers.
1: How do you take your coffee? (laughs) I would like it uh, white please, no sugar.
0: Each journey has been designed by the VI Journey Lead and is undertaken with a sighted travelling companion of their own choosing. Emily is in her early twenties. Although Lou and Emily have taken lots of trips into the city together, They've never done anything quite like this.
1: And um, there are some biscuits there. Would you like a biscuit? Um, I am quite hungry, but no, I'm OK, thank you. Are you sure you're going to wait? I'm going to
0: wait. They've been learning how to operate the handheld audio recorder that all travellers will use to capture their journey experiences. And Lou has explained to Emily about her sight and what guiding support she might need, something all journey takers will do before travelling. But not something Lou has done with Emily before. As they leave the light studio... I can hear
1: singing. Yeah, you can you hear singing? Yeah, I can hear singing. <laughs> I'm not Where's sure it where it's coming, coming from?
3: I'm not sure. I can't... I have to follow
4: the sound.
0: They follow the sound to discover the singing belongs to an installation at Arnolfini. Once outside the building, they find a place to stop by the harbour where Accompanied by a choir of seagulls, they read the first of four wild cards that all travellers are given to read and reflect upon on their journey.
3: Take a moment to stand together. Notice your breath, the ground beneath your feet, the movement of the air and the sands of the city. As you set out on this first part of your journey together, take this awareness with you. Notice the city landscape, the changing surfaces underfoot, the movement of the air and the aromas, flavours and textures that encounter you along the way.
0: And, senses attuned, they set off. When designing their journeys, all the VI leads were asked to choose stopping points in the city, places that held memories or experiences that were significant to them, and to incorporate a place that was a sensory delight and a place that was a no-go zone. Lou and Emily are headed for Lou's first stopping point.
4: And as they do that, we're going to find out more about my friend Lou.
1: Right, well, um, I came to Bristol when I was 18 months old. My parents uh, moved down from Leicester. Um, and uh, I spent a very happy childhood with two older brothers. Um, but we're very close in age, only three years between the three of us. So you can imagine we had fun. Um, and uh, I was at secondary school at Colston's um, girls' school, and... Um, and uh, I was diagnosed just before my uh, O levels um, when I was fifteen with uh, diabetes. So um, I was a bit of a bit of a shock. Um, my parents were both doctors, so they took it kind of in their stride. To be honest, there wasn't a great deal of fuss made about it. But um, I was straight onto insulin as a type one um, diabetic. I mean, I was a teenager, and it can be really tricky for teenagers. And I, I have to say, I did uh, rail against it slightly um, after a couple of years of, of living with it. So I was a bit neglectful, um, which is probably why it came back to bite me. I, but I, I was really happy. I travelled. I went to, um, after my A-levels, I went to Italy for a year. That was lovely. Really enjoyed that, uh, working in a fashion shop and looking after a little boy. Great great fun Um, and then came back and did my nurse training at the Royal Berkshire in Reading moved back to Bristol after being in Reading for four years um, and started doing agency nursing because I was planning on going to Australia for a year so I just was agency nursing until I saved the money to go and um, during that year I did meet my my boyfriend who then did become my husband but I still went to Australia (laughs)
0: Lou and her daughter Emily have travelled along the harbourside, skirted the edge of the shared space in the city centre and carried on into the old city, to a busy, covered market in a Georgian arcade. With an eclectic mix of independent stalls, tiny shops and delicious food stands, this is St Nicholas Market, Lou's first stop, and the place she has chosen as a sensory delight.
1: It's a vibrant, it's a, it's a real mixture of smells as you approach it. There's, yes, the smells of joss sticks and incense and, and food. Just getting to the door, you could smell incense, joss sticks and incense, and that lovely, sort of warm, woody sort of smell, really comforting sort of smell. And then when you go through the doors, it's sort of an onslaught of colours and shapes and, and um, sort of like a real. So sort of, yeah, assault of of vibrancy. So it's a real mixture of of vibrant pink with red and some gold and and blue. I always think the blues very sort of peacock blue, and and all the different because they're different stands and different stalls. There are different. There's different lighting, so there, there are darker areas and brighter areas, and a lot of different contrasting elements. A little bit confusing, to th- look at initially when you're looking at it initially you don't know where the paths are but it looks like it's great to explore we're going to go in <laughs> we're going in <laughs> yeah we're going in
0: lou and emily enter the bustling market and make their way towards the back
1: when you go in you start hearing the noises that are going around there's some music from some part There's, uh, you can hear people talking. Then there's the, the, the smell as you go through towards the back to the coffee shops. So you can smell fresh coffee.
0: Where they settle in a cafe, drinking in the atmosphere.
1: Sitting having a coffee and listening to everything that's going on around. There's music, there's chat, there's cooking noise there's cooking smells and you can hear coffee machines steam being sort of put through milk and you can smell the sort of slight sweetness and there's also what I would say the flavour of toasted cheese <laughs> in the air well, obviously there are toasted sandwiches or something being made and, and you can really you can hear the clattering of a kitchen and then you can smell that, that toasted cheese yeah very lovely <laughs> It is such such an Aladdin's cave. It is a beautiful place to just be.
0: Lou and Emily leave the market, walk past Castle Park, down past the Broadmead shopping area and over a busy traffic intersection towards Lou's second stop.
4: While we pick up the thread of Lou's story again,
1: So, um, went to Australia after working for a year, spent um, 10 months in Australia, came back because that that same said boyfriend came over and proposed marriage to me, so I cut my travels a little bit short, um, came home, got married, um, sort of uh, three months, uh, six months after that actually, Um, but when I came back I got a a job with the agency as as a manager for a short time because they needed somebody. Um, just for a maternity cover, so I did that. Then I went to, um, I got myself a job at the BRI in the cardiac surgery unit um, on the intensive care side of it. Um, and unfortunately, then after I'd been there for not that long, um, my eyesight decided to play up.
4: Lou says this was the most perfect time of her life. She'd been travelling, got married, had a new home, and the job she mentions was not only the one she'd been longing for. She was being fast tracked for a promotion. Everything was wonderful.
1: And then I noticed um, I was.
4: Here's Lou talking about what happened next.
1: I noticed at work somebody said, oh, there's something going on, you know, something going on over there. And I looked over and I thought, I've got wiggly lines, I can't see that clearly. And I thought, that's. Oh, and I wore glasses for distance anyway, but not strong. And they won't make any difference. I thought, mm. So I came home, watched television, same thing was happening. I thought, right, I've got to go to the optician. Went to the optician, and he threw his hands up in horror and said, I want you to go down to the hospital immediately.
0: Back in their city journey, Lou and Emily have arrived at Lower Modden Street and are admiring the sculpted brick panel by Walter Ritchie attached to the outside wall of the Bristol Eye Hospital, lose second stop.
1: Just arrived at the Eye Hospital, just feeling the textured wall outside which is
3: uh,
1: quite something to feel. But this is where my I, my sight loss journey started when I was 28. Um, Rush here is from my optician as an urgent case where they in fact discovered I have proliferative diabetic retinopathy, which is the end stage of diabetic retinopathy. Um, Obviously devastated at that time and I went through a lot of different procedures and intensive treatment.
0: Proliferative retinopathy, the last and most serious stage of diabetic retinopathy, is the stage that causes the sight loss.
1: So they started doing little bits of laser and then said, this is no good at all. We're going to have to knock you out and do both at the same time. So I have 5,000 blasts in my left eye, and 2,500 which is the maximum they could do in the right eye.
0: The initial laser treatment saved Lou's sight partially, but within a year, further complications had left Lou fully blind in her left eye and with only a narrow field of vision in her right.
1: Although I lost the sight in one eye and I've, got par- I've still got partial sight in the other, and I'm very grateful for that. And if they hadn't worked as hard as they did, I may well have no sight at all. So, uh, you know, mixed feelings.
0: Diabetic retinopathy is one of the leading causes of preventable sight loss in the UK. Living with diabetes was just one of the threads that Lou and Fanny discovered connected them when they first met as part of the City of Threads project.
1: Well, oh, well, well, I'm, I'm just going to say, when I think... Um, when you first when you first walked into the room <laughs> yeah. there was there was there was definitely something, there was an energy about you and your dress sense. <laughs> I thought there's there's a there's a woman who's very, you know, together and elegant.
4: Now I know why I like you so much. Yeah, yeah
1: so all was flannel I you, yeah.
4: No, it was interesting. It was interesting because, because I noticed you when mm-hmm. you came in. You, you know, you have a presence. But it was also that very first exercise we mm-hmm. had to do, which was talking about a difficult period in our life because we were trying to address emotions and that. And unfortunately, I really touched a nerve with you, oh, didn't I? Yeah. And we found out that we were both diabetics, both insulin dependent both had daughters and that was
1: it yeah you know
4: yeah we were sisters (laughs) yes
1: I remember the look on your face you were slightly surprised at my reaction which and then it transpired that in fact I'd responded so drastically in quite an emotional way very emotionally to to the question yeah because um my blood sugar was very low we had gone to
4: something quite deep and and maybe that's because your blood sugar was low, because, you know, our brains go funny when... Oh, they do. Oh don't, don't, well, that's yes. my
1: excuse. I don't know about you, Fanny. No, yes. no, that's <laughs> very... <not. laughs> oh, it's my blood sugar. It's my yes. blood sugar. Yeah, no.
0: Lou and Emily have left the Eye Hospital. Emily has never heard her mother tell the story of her sight loss before, and as they head off to Lou's third stop, she continues to gain new understandings about her mum and the city, including the hazards and obstacles that Lou faces every day.
1: The unevenness of pavements are a real problem. Uh, they're quite smooth along here, because of the new pavement. The, but it seems to be where tree roots are, they really lift up and they cause trip. Yeah, the trip hazards, as Emily says, tree roots and the older pavements. older pavements.
0: They encounter more trees.
1: We were just commenting that the the number of trees in Bristol is wonderful, and beautiful trees, but they do disrupt the pavements quite badly.
0: Go through an underpass.
1: Suddenly become very dark, and there are a succession of um, A signs in the middle of the pavement. <laughs> Not the easiest to negotiate. Certain changes in light are very difficult for me to adapt to, so going through the underpass was like being plunged into a pitch-black tunnel.
0: Tunnel safely negotiated. They carry on along the pavement until, finally...
1: We've just arrived outside the Colston Hall.
0: Now renamed Bristol Beacon.
1: Um, there's a lot of work going on because it's being refurbished at the moment. Well, the, the auditorium's being rebuilt. A little bit hazardous because there are bollards and workmen and signs. Um, so, in fact, we're staying on the far side of the road from it to avoid the hazards.
4: But Lou hasn't come here to talk about the hazards. So
1: we can sometimes get a bit carried away with this one, so you'll have to forgive us if we get a bit impassioned. <laughs> Very important place to me, the Colston Hall. It's been a place where I've seen numerous concerts and I've performed here too, and I love it. All, all my life it's been a place where I've been frequently and I have uh, yeah, a real special love of it.
4: Lou told me about the choir she sings in and the performance that they did in the hall.
1: It's the Riff Raff Choir, um, of which actually there are five Riffraff Choirs now in Bristol, um, and we all joined together to to um, perform at the Colston Hall uh, I think five years ago now, um, which was really quite amazing, um, because that meant there were about uh, at least 350 of us. Wow. And, um, well, there about 300, possibly, um, which was just amazing and we do various concerts in various places but this was uh, the biggie of course and it was a uh, blessing it took an awful lot of arranging and organizing and it was sort of like a military exercise getting us all on, on and off the stage um which was a little bit hairy i have to say at times with the, with the eyesight because the steps down at the back of colston hall but um i love i've been in choirs always i mean for long as i can remember i've always been in a choir but i joined this one um because it just sounded like so much fun and it is it's a it's a no audition no no reason no need to uh, to audition for it it's a sort of community based choir and um everything's done by ear being in the group is just the best oh yeah oh yes because you all feed off each other and you can hear everybody you know when you're doing it on your own you don't you don't get that you don't get that sort of you know the combination and the the sort of atmosphere and the energy from other people
0: and Lou's favourite song.
1: Last last term um, we did. Um, oh now i got my mind's gone blank. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it was my favorite Can't <laughs> <laughs> here, can't no. Dear. I can't think of it now. It was one, wasn't happy, but it was one of those. Uh, oh, Uptown Funk. Oh. Yeah, that was brilliant to do. We did Uptown Funk, and that was that was great because. Uh, I loved saying, hot damned. <laughs> <laughs> so she yeah. had
4: to stop during COVID then? Yeah, ah. yep.
1: it all went online. I have a little dabble at that, but I decided, you know, I don't, I think um, I'll just keep singing in the kitchen at the moment. <laughs> I see friends wave their hands, shouting, how do you do? I'm keeping my distance, but I love you.
0: Back in the city journey, Lou and Emily leave Bristol Beacon and the building works and head off to Lou's final stop.
4: And as they do that, let's hear Lou telling Holly, our other journey taker this episode, about how she rebuilt her life after the sight loss.
1: When I was diagnosed with the retinopathy, um, I had to stop my job as an as a intensive care nurse, for obvious reasons, <laughs> a little bit of a liability. Obviously I wanted to do something that was maybe akin to a a caring role Um, I didn't do it immediately it took me a little while to sort of recover from um, all the various bits and pieces Um, but fairly soon I decided I'd maybe do counselling to uh, to see if I could help other people in my position.
0: Sudden and significant sight loss takes some adapting to. Lou took a counselling course at University of Bristol, Part of the course was to receive counselling herself, which was critical for Lou, as there had been very little support available to her when she lost her sight.
1: It took me a little while to do that course because I had two children in the middle of it. Um, <laughs> just, just as you do. And I decided I would do aromatherapy as another sort of element of, of, of uh, complementary therapies, really, as well as counselling. So I did the diploma in aromatherapy and massage, which I loved, absolutely loved.
0: Lou then started a business combining aromatherapy and counselling. Fueled by both her personal and professional experiences, Lou also volunteered her time at the eye hospital and on a befriending service that was part of an RNIB counselling service, a service that Holly had used herself.
3: So I I remember accessing the Bristol-based RNIB counselling service Um, and i thought it was brilliant yeah really brilliant I don't know if you remember Lou but that there was a point at which the service sort of expanded yes. and they started to to run um like art for well-being sessions um and sensory photography absolutely brilliant yeah I Is really la- really thought it was such a such an amazing resource um mm. yeah and really sad when it yeah. all kind of came to an end yeah. quite abruptly really so um
0: the counselling service, which provided a space for people to talk through the many feelings and challenges that can arise following sight loss, moved from a face to face to a telephone based service as part of RNIB's national restructuring measures in 2017.
1: I don't think there was one person that wasn't sad about it, really.
0: Lou knows firsthand the importance of this kind of support being available at the right time.
1: I think it's vital. Absolutely vital. It, it is the first thing that people need in order to give, them the, the, to give them that support, to give them the confidence to then move on, accept what's happening and move on and get the specific help that they need.
0: In the city journey, Lou and her daughter Emily have moved on. They've wound their way back through the centre and are passing through Millennium Square, where Lou notes that silver fencing, being used to block off a construction area, is blending with the grey floor of the square, making it invisible. They then travel on up to Bristol Cathedral, Lou's final stopping point.
1: We're at the cathedral. We're actually outside the cathedral at the moment. We will go in, but I think... The cathedral, I was very privileged to be able to come into the cathedral to listen to the cathedral school choir and have the privilege of uh, having um, prize days and school assemblies in there, which is quite incredible to have in a cathedral of a city.
4: Lou's son was a student at Cathedral School, and as you heard Lou say, she managed to have two children during her retraining after her sight loss. Holly, whose journey we'll be hearing in part two, has a son. They got together to talk parenting.
1: I mean, my children have always known me with um, a visual impairment, although, you know, I've never actually made a thing of it with them we so we used to get on really as normally as possible and one of the things that they always loved were Halloween parties and we always went you know I was went that extra mile there was a competition for who's the best best costume and um, the children all decided mine was the best because of my cataract on my left eye which was just white so it looked like I had some sort of lens in there Uh they thought that was so good that was so good so you won first prize i won first prize for having a a a white eye (laughs) which you know which was no effort needed (laughs) (laughs) and and didn't you
3: have a story about when um something to do with your your
1: contact yeah yeah i had a i had a contact lens a cosmetic contact lens made um so to for the the white eye mm. so it would look more like the other one it was actually hand painted very lovely yeah. um but I often couldn't be bothered with it but um one day uh, the the one of the children again they were quite small and about five one of them said to me what what's where's where's your eye and I said oh I've got it in a box <laughs> and I, I said and they would just laugh and joke they say no you haven't no you haven't. and I said yes I have and they were all around the tea table. So I went off and I got it out and I put it on the end of my finger. So it was just like an eye, like an iris and a yeah. pupil. Yeah. And I put it on the end of my finger and put my finger around the door, kitchen door, and said, here we are, I'm watching you. <laughs> Wiggling the end at the end of my finger. And of course, you know, there was squeals and howls and... Ah! Oh, oh,
5: that's, that's fantastic. fantastic.
3: when my son was young I think I probably always talked about being visually impaired in one way or another um quite often it just came out over practical things where there might be something I couldn't see that he would see or just for him to be really aware when we were kind of crossing roads and and that sort of thing I guess like I really remember you know that time when they're they're still kind of really young and sort of just starting to toddle about and and find their way around playgrounds and things like that but they're not old enough to really understand not sort early. of the dangers and and that sort of thing um, and i remember that period being quite tricky mm, mm. and quite often i would actually go to places like that with another mum with yeah, a friend yeah, so someone definitely. who was like, had a bit more sight to to keep track of them because yeah. i'd find that once he'd gone out of my Sight line, which isn't very far. That yeah. was it then. Anxiety he, he was...
1: hits big time. Doesn't yes, it? I mean yes. even in playgrounds, in the school playgrounds. I mean, once they're all running about, you can't see anything so anyway. I mean, out. that's easy to lose yeah. any child, let alone one when you can't. You know, see Absolutely, and
3: particularly because they're wearing school uniform. I used to oh, well, really find that tricky because there was no kind of way of no. of sort of spotting. Mm. Spotting my son from any of the other children then at that point.
1: Could have taken anyone home, really. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) (laughs) At the end of their city journey, Lou and Emily leave the cathedral behind them and head back to Arnolfini, where coffee and cake and a chance to reflect on what their journey together has revealed to them awaits. I think my
3: perception of visual impairment before this um, was that my mum just kind of got on with it, and I always thought like kind of would forget that she was blind because I'm like, oh, she just you wouldn't really notice. Um, But then after this, it's kind of made me realise all the challenges that she faces and how it's a constant thing to have in your mind and constant thing you have to focus on.
4: Lou, Mm. Emily, Emily said she gained a new insight into you after the journey her reflections I mean has that grown or changed how is it now or this time after the journey
1: um I think it's definitely made her more aware of, of you know what she needs to do to to help me in situations well it sort of preempt what needs to be done if we're going someplace and it's a it's, you know, it's suddenly darker or it's, it's you know, it's, things are awkward, like there's a flight of steps or that. So it's just made her just think of me it, just in a slightly more, instead of just being mum mm-hmm. who gets on with everything, mm-hmm. it's made her actually just think again about what she as now an, an, a young adult can do to support me you know in a way that she didn't think of it before do you think it's altered her sort of perception in a way of how she looks at the city as well oh yes definitely definitely i mean she said herself she you know she hadn't realized you know what the difficulties might be for anybody with with any sort of disability actually when you when you're um you just go about things every day in your own way, and you just—it doesn't occur to you that things are uneven, or think there are steps that are or, or tree roots. Are, oh, the tree roots! Um, things that things that are are hazardous. That normally you just the majority of people would just um, step over them, or st- step round them, or or just not have to consider them in such a way. The concentration that is needed for just an everyday journey around the city mm. um is is so much more than she ever had mm. considered so yes definitely and i think it's it's probably it, as i said you know giving her a broader outlook as as far as considering what other people have to do mm. that that shift i mean not so that she's you know um I don't think she ever would be but sort of all over me saying oh no you're all right there can you do that, can you do that? I would not want that at all but she <laughs> no. would not do it either I'm sure so so that, that but it's just that little bit of understanding really and I'm very happy that she now has a, has a better understanding well that's my journey done now Fanny let's take a short break okay back soon Welcome back to City of Threads, we're going in. I'm Lou Lifely.
4: And I'm Fanny Eaton-Hall, and we are your co-hosts.
1: Right, we're going back in.
0: Here's Holly at Arnolfini, with Ant, her travel companion, just before they set off on their journey.
3: We're actually at the very top of the Arnolfini on the top floor. And you can um, lean over just a little bit, very safely, um, and you can get this real sense of depth and uh, the size of the space because it's open all the way down to the ground floor. And I love that sensation of when you can really feel um, like a drop below you or a height above you and that, you know, even if you can't see the depth of the space, you can really have a felt sense through the sound and the... um, That felt sense of how open the space is. But I understand you're not so keen on that
0: sensation.
2: I'm feeling slightly vertigo-y. I don't have vertigo, but looking down over it is making me feel a A a bit uncomfortable.
0: Holly and Ant have known each other for years. Here they are a bit earlier, introducing themselves to other journey takers, also taking their journeys that day.
3: Hi, I'm Holly, and I am the journey lead today.
2: Hi, I'm Ant and I'm going to be out with uh, Holly today as her guide. Holly and I have known each other for just over 20 years and we met when, well I guess it was the first time I'd met Holly's friend Amy and Amy and I started going out with each other and we're still together and we have two children now.
0: Holly is a dancer and performer and is one of the movers and shakers behind the City of Threads project. She explains to Ant about her eyesight. Unlike Lou, who lost sight as an adult, Holly has had a visual impairment since birth and doesn't experience her eye condition as a loss of sight.
3: So my eye condition is called sclerocornea. It's a condition that affects my cornea, so the front of the eye. I also have uh, something called latent nystagmus, which is like an eye wobble that usually only happens if I close one eye or if... I'm really tired and then I get it then but um, I shouldn't imagine that that will kick in at all today Um, so yeah my eyesight's quite blurry and I get almost like triple vision a lot in my right eye and yeah I don't really have very much depth of perception at all so That's the thing I probably most notice. So in familiar places, like on our journey today, I kind of know where the steps and and stairs and things are that I need to know about. If I'm somewhere unfamiliar, then it, it has kind of more of an impact.
2: Can I ask if you're going to be using a stick?
3: Ah, yeah, so I've got my symbol cane with me, and I'll use that.
0: Visually impaired people use a variety of canes. There's the long cane, which is used to navigate by sweeping from side to side. But Holly uses a symbol cane, which is a small white cane that you hold in front of you that does not touch the ground, but indicates to others that you have a visual impairment.
3: So I don't usually use that when I'm walking with someone else, but I will use it today so that you can see the times when I would use it in the city.
0: And with all necessary, practical information shared, they gather their things, ready to set out. Just before they head out of the door...
3: I'm just going to take one of the um, little orange, like, satsumas and have one of those. Would you like one?
2: No, thank you. Are
3: you sure?
2: I'm really sure. I don't like citrus fruit that you? much.
3: you? No. Oh, well, there's something else I discovered yes. about you. There we are.
0: <laughs> Once outside Arnolfini, they read their first wild card and look for a quiet spot to stand for a moment. So Holly can help Ant tune in to the way she experiences the city.
3: So it might be work, because we're quite, quite quiet, just standing just for a few seconds with our eyes closed. Mm-hmm. Maybe like half a minute or something. OK,
2: I've got my eyes closed now. OK,
3: I'm just going to close mine and just tune in a little bit. you start to notice things already Mm. so there's quite a lot of like sound of pedestrians I heard the sound of the steam train that's over by the M shed just before we started recording there Mm it is so I guess the steam train's running today
2: I find it strangely relaxing
3: it's really nice here isn't it yeah yeah Can you feel the change in the surfaces underneath your feet?
2: Yes, I can. Yeah,
3: suddenly become aware that even this pavement is quite uneven. Yeah.
2: Yeah, textures to it.
3: And then the temperature of the air.
2: Yeah, and it's the voices I'm getting. Ah. As well, footsteps.
3: I really start to notice, like the air on my face. Mm. And on my hand. Mm.
0: Okay,
3: and then if we open our eyes...
0: (laughs) And, finely tuned, they set off from Arnolfini towards Holly's first stop. And while they do that, let's hear a bit more about Holly. Holly is from the small seaside town of Burnham-on-Sea, which is south of Western Supermare.
3: At home, um, I uh, grew up with my mum and dad and um, my sister... Um, And also my grandparents, actually, we all all lived together. Um, But then I went away to uh, special school, as they were called then, um, when I was six. So I was a boarder from age six um, until I was about 14. And then I spent a couple of years in mainstream school. Um, Went away again to do my A-levels in specialist school. Um, And then I went to university in Liverpool to study drama. Um, From there I worked for a community theatre company for a couple of years in Bristol and then moved away and taught performing arts at an RNIB college in Surrey Um, and it was while I was there that I um, did some dance training um, and sort of continued my dance training from, from there.
0: In the city journey, Holly and Aunt have arrived at Holly's first stopping point, Queen's Square, a beautiful Georgian park area surrounded by trees and cobbled streets and edged on all four sides by elegant Georgian townhouses.
3: What I really love about Queen's Square is it's, I just love the sound, so there's just something about the way that the sound is captured in the square. I don't know how well you can hear it on the recorder, but it's um, it really makes reminds me of being at the seaside. Really makes me think about um, like uh, home, like where I, um, where I'm from, where my parents live. Um, and it. I just feel like the sound is really held, and it's really quiet. There's a real sort of stillness about it that I really love, even though there's kind of people coming through and passing by and I kind of feel like I've been to Queen Square a lot through living in Bristol, like a lot of the most years that I've been here. And it re- it makes me think about the seasons. So I've been here a lot in the autumn and um, we used to come here a lot when our boy was little and take photos every autumn and like picking up the autumn leaves, there's loads and loads of leaves and the colours are so beautiful. And then also thinking about... I've been here in the winter. I don't know if you've ever been here when all the crows are roosting. Have you ever been here when the crows are roosting?
2: I don't think I have, no.
3: So I've only met know- a couple of times when I've been here at dusk and there's just been like tens, if not hundreds, of crows just stood all over the grass and they just stand really, really still and kind of <laughs> gather and... Um, every so often you'll just hear one or two of them just calling like they call to each other and Mm -hmm. then more come and land and stand just it's amazing Um, and then a few of them will go up into the trees um, but it's it's just there you go there's a crow sound now (laughs) it's such an incredible sound and I just happened to have like passed through here in the evenings there's another one Uh, yeah through the winter and just seen them all. Like they look like old men or something. Just all <laughs> gathering and standing together. Okay. Lovely. Should we move on?
0: And leaving the atmospheric Queen Square behind them, Holly and Aunt head into the busy part of the city, towards Holly's second stop.
1: Holly has a sensory awareness of the city that is finely tuned. She credits this to her dance training. Before we follow Holly and Ant onto the next part of their journey, let's hear Holly talking about how she ended up specialising in dance. Whilst
3: I was teaching at um, uh, the RNIB College in, in Red Hill in Surrey, um, we were approached by uh, a contemporary dance school called The Place um, and they uh, were running an education project with a choreographer called Saburi Teshigawara Um, And they were looking for visually impaired dancers to be part of this project. And they really couldn't find anyone. And I think at that time there were maybe one or two dancers in in the country who were visually impaired. Um, So they approached us um, and um, asked if any of uh, my students might be interested in being involved in the project. So I went along with um, one of my students Um, and took part in some
1: dance training and some workshops there, Um, and then they asked me to be part of the project. This was the turning point for Holly. Not only was she working with a top choreographer and training in a highly disciplined dance form, this is also where she first came across a company called Touchdown Dance, whose director then invited her to join the company.
3: Touchdown Dance is an integrated dance company of sighted and visually impaired dancers um, using contact improvisation um, as the sort of main dance form, um, which essentially is uh, an improvised dance form where you're exploring your sort of connection with your own body and with another dancer. Um, So rather than learning a, a practice where you sort of watch the teacher... Um, and try and copy uh, the shape of, of a particular uh, dance move, for example, um, you're actually working from an internal sense of your, your own body um, and your own movement. So it was through working with Touchdown that I learned contact improvisation and uh, this sort of somatic approach to, to movement and dance. And
1: this in turn had a knock-on effect on how Holly experiences and navigates the city.
3: One of the things about somatic practice is it's about using all of your senses to connect both with your, your own body, but also your surroundings, your environment and the space around you. One of the things I really remember noticing is coming out of class um, or rehearsals um, where, you know, I'd been very much in this embodied state of movement and coming out and, and having a really different connection with The space around me. So, even sort of travelling home on the bus or walking through the city, it suddenly became far more three dimensional, and I had a much kind of greater sense of not just the buildings or the landscape, but the space that I'm actually inhabiting. And I think, as someone who doesn't have very much depth perception at all, so visually I live in a very kind of flat world. The somatic training enables me to kind of key into that three-dimensional space that we actually inhabit.
0: As well as her creative dance practice, Holly is also developing audio description that explores how to bring that felt experience of dance to a visually impaired audience.
3: So it just, yeah, completely fascinates me and interests me how you use language and words and description to connect your audience if you're not accessing that visually. Two dancers with eyes closed lie motionless on the ground. They are separated by space, lying on their backs like upturned starfish, their arms and legs outstretched, finding surface against
0: the floor. That was an audio description written by Holly. If you'd like to hear the entirety of it, you can tune in to the immersive sister episode of We're Going In after this. But for now, let's head back to Holly's city journey. Holly and Aunt have left Queen Square and headed towards the city centre by the Cascade Waterfall steps and the shared space. As they pass this area, Holly explains that, though she loves its vibrancy, She wishes it were designed better for visually impaired people. They continue up Bristol's busy Park Street to the narrow, hard-to-spot corridor that leads to the Folk House, a Bristol gem and Holly's second stop.
3: So we've just arrived at the entrance to the Folk House and as you might be able to hear, it's very echoey. It's sort of a long, kind of closed corridor and you can hear the traffic at one end
0: the folk house is tucked between a travel agent and a music shop. It's an art and education centre, has a cafe and is a live music venue. Holly and Aunt are still in the corridor.
3: You were just commenting on really noticing the, the sound, how it sounds.
2: Yes, yeah, absolutely, which I probably take for granted usually. That sort of Some echo, steps coming up. which are you...
3: very nicely marked, yes, with yellow, yellow. edging, so yes. I know exactly Thank you. where they were. Yeah. Thank you.
0: They come out the other end into a peaceful courtyard,
3: and then there's this nice little courtyard. Yeah, it's nice and quiet. I do like finding all these quiet places close to the centre. So, do you think it's open?
0: Yes, it's open.
3: I wanted to come to the folk house because. Um, I really, really associate being in Bristol and discovering Bristol because I came here... I kind of moved to Bristol when I was in my mid-20s, I think, early 20s. And I remember coming here to the folk house and i have never really been anywhere quite like it before. Um, and I love the fact that it hasn't changed at all, really, in the whole sort of 20 years that I've, I've been in Bristol. Um, I feel incredibly comfortable here and really I love that there's this sort of independent place that makes music and dance and arts that's just so warm and friendly and it's on Park Street. I actually I probably first came here with your partner Amy so um, Amy as you know, Amy and I went to university together and I really discovered Bristol through Amy.
1: Holly says being a boarder at school meant that while her family home was still very much her home, she had never felt part of a wider community or place. But Bristol was that place, a perfect fit.
3: So she invited me to do some puppet shows with her at festivals. And uh, so I used to come and stay in the summer uh, and stay with her. And we'd do all these crazy puppet shows together um, and make puppets and go off to loads of different festivals and entertain the kids um, and yeah, it was great fun and so I'm sure it was probably Amy that I first came here with.
0: And Holly and Amy are still coming here, all these years later.
3: We came here three weeks ago to see a singer called Rory Macleod, who me and Amy have... To see, yeah, over the years, and we used to see him quite a lot when we were younger, um, and we both really love him. He's a folk singer, but he sings about real, real people's lives, I guess, quite a lot. Whilst we were here um, a couple of weeks ago, I was very involved in planning these journeys. We were at that time planning all these journeys that we're now all taking around the city, and um, Rory played a song that I'd not heard him play before. Um, which is quite unusual because he's got kind of a, a set that I know quite well. Um, and it was such a beautiful song. And it's a cover, I think, um, from another singer called Ewan M- McColl, I Ewan think? McColl? Ewan yeah. McColl. Um, and it had some words about journeying. And it just really struck me um, while thinking about these journeys that these words sort of appeared and I heard them, Um, so I wanted to just read them out, so can I just ask you to hold the microphone, there was just a few lines that um, made me think about, probably more widely about what it is to journey, may your wings be strong, may your days be long, safe be your journey, each of you bears inside of you the gift of love, may it bring you light and warmth and the pleasure of giving. Eagerly savour each new day and the taste of its mouth. Never lose sight of the thrill and the joy of living.
0: So Holly and Ant leave the warmth and bustle of the Folk House Café, go back down the corridor, turn right down Park Street and head towards the Cathedral, which is Holly's last stop. But on their way, they get diverted by a beautiful sound.
3: Probably hear
2: the waterfall, mm-hmm. which is really lovely. You think, I'm just wondering if it sounds more beautiful than it looks.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: The sound is being created by the functional-looking fountains outside the council house.
2: Yeah, I mean it's just a bit amazing, north, isn't it? Yeah, because it's a beautiful sound.
0: And finally, they end up at the cathedral, Holly's final stop.
3: We're just by the cathedral, and I will tell you a little bit about this before we go in.
0: The cathedral is a place Holly discovered as part of an artist course she did, and it turned out to be another one of these quiet places of sanctuary that Holly loves, close to the city centre.
3: I'm not, as you know, a religious person at all, but I just found this like place of stillness and sanctuary and somewhere to rest and contemplate.
0: They go into the cathedral vestibule, ready to sample the peace and tranquillity.
3: Oh, it sounds like the organ's on. So we hear the organ. And I'm just going to ask you just to be really... One thing I always notice in here is the smell. Just notice the smell. Okay. Okay, okay.
0: They open the heavy wooden doors to the main space and go in. The smell's amazing.
3: We went in, obviously the organ was playing, and um, we both felt like it made us want to laugh, yes, really. Yes, yes. <laughs> it was quite dramatic.
2: Dramatic, yeah. A bit yeah.
3: comical, somehow. Yeah,
2: almost overdramatic.
3: A bit overdramatic, yeah, a bit melodramatic. Yeah, yeah.
2: yes.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and you were saying, though, some, yeah, you said...
2: The space, uh, Bristol Cathedral, even though I, I have no religion, but I do like being in those spaces, Know, and there is something about, I don't know, about the size of it, the fact that you can just sit yes. on your own. Yeah. And it's, yes. it's just, it's fine. It's yes. You know, people aren't going to think anything of you. It's just, well, yeah, so it's, it's perfectly acceptable to sit there on your own.
0: Yeah.
2: And just be.
3: Yes.
2: And how often do we get that?
3: And what I, I actually really like being in the cathedral when there isn't any sound. I love it when... Well, you can just go in and you smell that amazing I don't even know what the smell is like the building just oh I love that smell but I really like again that when you go into a building that you can feel the three dimensionality of mm. it so again I don't really see that because mm. the world's a pretty flat place yeah, I'm fine on, steps, fine on yeah. these steps actually yeah um, but just that sense of when it architecturally seems to have been built in a way that opens the space up and you suddenly feel the connection, this felt sense of the space. I just love, and And I just want to move and dance, but I don't (laughs) in the cathedral.
0: (laughs) As they have this conversation, Holly and Ant are descending the steep and uneven steps behind the cathedral that Lou classes one of her no-go zones in the city and avoided taking on her route. Crossing a busy road... Holly and Aunt arrive at Millennium Square, which Lou passed through earlier on her journey with emily and Holly has stopped again, but this time by an architectural anomaly that she's never had time to explore before
3: there's this very odd like I think it's like a glass archway, um, but I remember walking along here and like I was walking down it and I suddenly noticed it and had this moment because there's this bit of glass that comes oh i thought it came out towards you it actually doesn't that's really interesting so it's a flat bit of glass i thought it was coming out towards me but it actually goes away from me wow i i had no idea i really thought that was coming out to hit me and it's not like does it have a purpose do you think it has a purpose
2: um it is some sort of archway entry uh way i guess the the, um The architects, the designers had a a purpose for it. Maybe it deflects sound, I don't know. Ah,
3: could be. Maybe,
2: I don't know. Maybe
3: that's what it is. I don't know. Very confusing though. Mm.
2: Apart from the glass
4: wall, mirage and invisible fencing, Holly and Lou both find Millennium Square an easy space to navigate. But here they are talking about other
3: kinds of tricks their eyesight can play on them it wasn't a glass wall it was a glass archway and then there was like this new layer of discovery when I was on the journey with Ant you know that that sort of trick that your eyes play on you almost if you don't have depth perception your brain's trying to kind of fill in the gaps yeah (laughs) yeah and sometimes getting it completely wrong (laughs) yeah you know it's sort of just part of of my kind of pretty much daily experience when traveling through places that Um, Some things are are not always what they seem. And I also have this other thing where quite often my brain will fill in something completely different from from what's actually there. So um, I had a story (laughs) when I was younger about um walking when I was at work I was outside and I walked up to to see my manager um and discovered that I was actually walking up to the back end of a bus oh. Oh. <laughs> and I did tell her about it I was like I did, I did mistake <laughs> you for you the, back like
1: the back end of the bus <laughs> or anything <laughs> um when I've tried to have a conversation or, or what I thought was that I was sort of engaging with this smartly dressed gentleman by the mail changing room <laughs> My partner came out of the changing room and said, could you get me a size something-something trousers? I think they're just over there. And I said, well, that's a nice gentleman. And he looked at me and said, it's a dummy.
0: (laughs) Writer Kate O'Reilly calls the tricks your eyes can play on you when you're visually impaired, maverick sight.
3: If I'm really tired, I might often be somewhere and then I'll see my cat for a second. Yeah,
1: yeah. I have done that. And it's funny you should say your cat because I've done it... Um, this is more recently, but um, I see my dog, and I almost trip over him.
0: And the everyday optical illusions caused by city design.
1: I mean, daily going around the place, it's more um, things like, with the depth perception, it's it's those ridiculous markings on pavements that make it look like there's a step when there isn't one, or, or markings that would indicate the edge of a step, but the edge of the step is then, you know, another... Six inches or so beyond that, yes, and and you stumble because you think the the mark, the line is showing the edge of the step, and in fact you've got more step to go. And do you ever find yourself doing those sort of um, steps, <laughs> fake steps? steps? Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Ministry of funny walks here we come. One of
4: our project's core collaborators has been Uta Lennards, a neuroscientist and lecturer at Bristol University. She specialises in the neuroscience of well-being in
1: relation to the built environment. She spoke to Holly via a Zoom call and started by talking about how we might all work together to design more inclusive cities that would take into account the experiences of us as visually impaired people.
5: Our tendency nowadays in design to think only of the visual system when we are designing. It's almost like, you know, yes, human beings are visual animals. We think and, you know, in visual terms, etc. But it would be completely wrong to think that we are happy with just the visual. To the contrary, we are really highly multisensory and we are embedded beings. And those two factors need to be accounted for. Beauty is not for nothing um, in the eye of the beholder Um, and varies, varies massively with my background my cultural and my educational background and um, lots of other factors what varies far less and what is most certainly far more important than beauty um, is the comfort you're experiencing because that is a direct physiological measure so it's that what we need to try to figure out What is it which provides you with the comfort you need? All our senses need to work together. And if that information which we receive from all the different senses is coming together in a sensible and congruent way, that means if that tells the same story about the outside world, then it's easy to understand the environment we're in. For example, if I walk in a forest and I see branches on the floor, then I know before I step on those branches, not only that the branches might be dangerous and I could slip, but also how it might feel to step on them and how it will sound when they crack. In cities, however, that design is not at all always congruent. And you've brought this beautiful example of the pavement outside there, where you say, Um, it looks and it feels different as if there is an edge coming up, a step coming up. And, you know, so your visual information warns you that you might fall um, because there is something which is not real and doesn't fit together between the information your visual system gives you and how the outside world really is physically set up. So by designing for something which looks spectacular on the visual side, we might actually override the information we need and we get from our other senses to really make sense of the world. So we are speaking a little bit of what we call um, visual clutter or visual
4: noise. Uta explained why Millennium Square is a space that is
5: congruent for both Lou and Holly. All of a sudden, you have all the information which comes together, the sound which travels and comes back to you and therefore gives you a feel of how big that space is, where the boundaries are. You feel really comfortable because you can actually thrive in there. The other example which I really, really loved was Lou's experience of St. Nicholas Market where she goes and really talks about the multi-sensory experience of sounds, smells, colors, lights, you know, which is on one side almost confusing the first moment because there is so much of it. But because they're all working in harmony, they work together, they join up to an experience which leads her to feel pleasure and delight and comfort. And that's, far more than what vision on its own could cater for.
1: And what might our VI experience of travelling through the city offer our sighted travelling companion?
5: There are actually some things all of a sudden coming up which they have ignored before, which are lovely and beautiful, actually more beautiful than the visual input. Um, I love the fountain example you're giving um, where say the fountain as such is visually actually quite brutal but the sound is absolutely stunning i think when we come and we look at it as a whole how the whole body is affected we will find that then actually things start to become far clearer you are a specialist in in one way and can tell me things which i might not see I can provide the science and I can provide, you know, what is going on in the brain and how different senses might come together and, you know, put the mechanisms in place. The designers can give me, again, some completely different um, aspect. An artist might be able to then make it graspable for everybody by providing beautiful examples to play with and to experience the different kinds of experiences um, other people might have. And through all these people, bringing them together, that's how we get further. Nobody on their own can do that.
4: Uta goes on to describe a space that engages all
5: the senses. The cathedral, and you have the smell, you have the sound, you have the stillness, which is also almost, you know, a kind of special kind of sound. And the visual um, softness of the environment gives you a feel of freedom because the space is really enveloping you almost like, you know, um, embracing you and therefore allowing you to actually let your embodied being fully relaxed in it and open up. And all these different factors need to be taken together and appreciate the beauty of of the other senses and how we could use them to to make the city more navigable, but also more beautiful for everybody.
0: Back at Arnolfini, having finished a journey characterised by discovering new things about the city and each other, Polly and Ant have discovered one final surprising thread of connection.
3: I really realised when you were reading the cards out of, like, maybe it's quite challenging reading it out and then recording it. Cause
0: of yes,
2: because of my dyslexia. dyslexia. Yeah. Really,
3: really, yeah. I had this real thing of, like, God, it feels like when I'm trying to navigate something that I can't see very well. Yeah. You know, like, really having to concentrate, like, through... Uh, uh, ..like... I like was trying to look through a forest, or there's things in the way of what it mm. is that you're trying to navigate and communicate. I could really feel that level of attention. Of, of, had just had that feeling of, like, oh gosh, that's a real connection in terms of. You know, it's like yeah. the city's not really designed for people who don't see mm. very well. And, like, written language isn't really designed for people who have that neurodiversity yeah. and yeah. don't read yeah. in the same way. Yeah. And it just, I had that real. Mm. Connecting moment for a minute, and I don't think I'd ever thought about it
1: like that before.
0: And leaving Holly and Ant, we're joining Lou, Fanny, and Holly many months later when they gathered to talk with Rachel, director of Pico Theatre, to discuss their episode and what they hoped others might gain from listening to their journeys.
3: There's a shared experience, so I guess there's something about having perhaps you know this is an opportunity for the audience to take a shared journey with somebody or to take a journey where you spend the time to really connect with the the space around you um and really take in all those different sort of sensory elements um that make up whatever it is that the the space where you live or the place a place that's important to you Um, just to to make time to take a journey for that reason rather than for just kind of getting from A to B.
4: Yes, I certainly picked up on seeing the city now, the sounds, the wind in the trees, the birds, the scents, the smells of food, the surfaces of pavement. I just see the city in a whole new light now.
3: I think there's something as well about those spaces that you're then drawn to because of that. Like what, where are those places that you feel drawn to, or the places that you want to
1: explore, or or just land in for a moment? Like a reawakening, isn't it, of a place that you've always taken for granted? Yeah. Mm. Yes. Good, yeah.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Experiencing it in a new way, isn't it?
4: To return to the place that you started from and know it for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll be handing the baton over to our fellow
1: City of Threads teammates for the next episode. But first, we'd recommend you tune in to the sister episode of We're Going In. Where, through the
4: magic of immersive sound, we'll take you deeper into the heart of some of the places and moments in the journeys.
1: So you get to experience the city in
4: our shoes. Best listened to on headphones.
1: Bye! Bye.
0: To find out more about these podcasts and the people featured in this episode, you can find additional information at www.partexchangeco.org.uk.